All right, it's been two weeks. Let's see if I remember how to do this here. <clears throat> ah. So, oh, not there yet. Okay. So just as a, a little reminder, right, what we've been doing for, for quite some time now is going through the Gospels and taking a look at them in a slightly different way, uh, looking at them in a more contextual kind of place so that we better understand what really Jesus is teaching uh, through understanding the times and life and the culture of what's going on at that time. Uh, and so today I'm actually going to teach on, I was talking to Michelle, I think it might be like one of the three most, I don't want to say complicated, but like difficult scripture verses uh, that the Lord uses in terms of stories and parables in the New Testament. Uh, I wouldn't say it's the most difficult, it might be the second or the third. Uh, we'll get to one of the more difficult, the most difficult one eventually, but We'll get there when the Lord directs us. It's just like one of those things where you're like, what's being said? What's going on? There's so many different interpretations of it. Uh, and that is uh, the story of the rich man trying to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the Lord responds with this seemingly kind of like cryptic, but also seemingly understandable parable in a way of a camel and a needle and all this stuff. Uh, but to give some clarification on that, which we're going to be doing today, I want to begin uh, in Matthew chapter 19, uh, but it's a little bit of a longer section of scripture. So I found a, a video uh, that I was able to download. Now the video is a little, I don't want to say quite cheesy, but it's, I guess, dubbed because I guess the, the video is from another, uh, another language, but it just really paints the picture of what's going on in that scene. So if we can have that, uh, that would be wonderful. I just got to switch over the, to DVI. Thank you. Now a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Which ones? The man inquired. Jesus replied, Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal. Don't give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these are kept, the young man said. What was to lack? Jesus answered. If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad, <clears throat> because he had great wealth. So we can uh, switch back to the slides. Be cool. All right. So here we go. Right. <clears throat> so 
it is harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to pass through or enter through the eye of a needle. Okay, so uh, throughout the ages and throughout the centuries, you know, all the poor people hear this and they're like, that's right! See, you rich people, you wealthy people, you're greedy. Right? So that's what, you know, poor people can say in the last several hundreds of years. And some people even say that today. Oh, the rich, they're so greedy, this, that, and the other thing. Feels really good to be poor in that story. And then wealthy people, especially those that obviously are bored again, they're like, wait, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Like, I worked hard for this wealth. I'm not greedy. I give unto the Lord. I help people. It doesn't have lordship over my life. So it's, it's tough. Now, even for us, you know, um, and some of us who may be poor, there's a couple of things that we need to take a look at to really build a foundation of what's going on here. Okay? The camel going into a needle. Not going to happen, right? Here we go. 70% of Africa is considered poor. Now, their understanding of poor and our understanding of poor are very different. I think uh, last time I checked, uh, to be at the poverty level in the United States uh, would be one person, one person living under, I think, $14,000 a year. Um, they don't go by that. Percent of population living under $2 a day. So what that? 360 by 2, it's at uh, 36, $720? $730, thank you. $730. So if you make more than $730 a year, you would not be in that stat. <laughs> These are people getting 2 bucks a day under $1,000 a year. That is poverty for them. Let's sink in for a second. Okay. Now, it gets worse. Eight, mil- eight million people die from lack of food and nutrition every year. About 24,000 deaths each day. One-sixth of our population um, of the world is starving. There are, there are 936 million people who do not have enough to eat. If you go off of that stat of 24,000, thousand deaths per year uh, based on um, dying because of, of not having enough food. That's 17 people per minute. That's one person every four seconds. One Mississippi. Two Mississippi. Three Mississippi. Four Mississippi. Child just died in Latin America. One Mississippi. Two Mississippi, three Mississippi, four Mississippi. Child just died in India. One Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi, four Mississippi. All day long, every day, every night, since who knows when. Now, I'm, I'm saying this because the reality here is that for my cup of coffee right here, Someone lives off of that a day, the price. And I want to be clear before we get into all of this today that we do have, we do absolutely have a responsibility from the Lord 
to alleviate both physical and more importantly, if you can, if you can take that pill, spiritual suffering. We have a mandate. A lot, of, a lot of people are like focused too much on the physical, if I dare say, and then not talk about their spiritual suffering as well. And then there are other people that talk so much about their spiritual suffering, they're not talking about physical suffering. Um, we do have a mandate from the Lord to assist and to alleviate both types of suffering in our world. It's, it's absolutely true. But there's a second section here, and that is that wealth is relative. The poorest person in America, the poorest person, whoever you may be in this church, is still vastly more wealthy than 70% of the people in Africa. And I want to lay that out because of this. If you are poor, you are rich in comparison to them. So if that's the case, are you now unable to enter the kingdom of heaven? So many of us, right, it's like, oh, those wealthy, greedy people, they can't get to heaven. But I'm not one of them. Well, you may not be one of the greedy ones, but you are absolutely one of the wealthy ones if you're going from the perspective of someone living in Somalia, someone living in India, someone living in China, someone living all over planet Earth. And it's a warning. You have to be very, very, very careful when you're casting blame on someone that is wealthy because you are wealthy in the eyes of someone else. It's all relative. Well, I can't buy, you know, this, that, and the other thing. I'm not that wealthy. You have a roof over your head. You have shoes on your feet. You make more than $2 a day. You're wealthy. No, I'm not. Well, in our society, you're not. But according to the rest of the planet Earth, you are really, really wealthy. So we have to be careful with that. And... Here's the punchline. The punchline with this is this isn't really what Jesus is talking about here. It's not. But people want to think that's what it is. And there are various reasons for it, and there's various interpretations of this scripture verse. It's, it's unbelievable. So many people try to slice and dice and do all this kind of theological mojo to try to make it work for particularly the Western church. The first theory of this scripture verse is, oh, the camel and the eye of the needle. Uh, we call it the gate theory. Well, what Jesus is really meaning here, he is meaning a camel. But the eye of the needle is actually in reference to a small doorway or gate inside of the walls of Jerusalem. And so what Jesus is saying here is a big wealthy person with all the big camels and all the big goods. What he has to do is he has to humble themselves, lower themselves, even if they're rich, just have a humble attitude, which is, this is a good lesson. I mean, I'm not knocking. That's a good lesson. Be humble. And so by stripping away all the burdens and stuff, then they would be able to enter in through the eye of the needle or the gate. It's a very popular teaching. Some of us may have heard it. Maybe you haven't. The unfortunate reality is there's no such gate. There's no scriptural proof text for this. In fact, there's not even any historical proof text for there being like some small gate. I'm not sure if anyone's ever heard of that. It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. So why do we have it? Well, we have it because it's very pal palpable, 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 yeah. It's very palatable for the Western church. It's, 
I can have lots of money and lots of things and do all this kind of stuff. I just need to like sometimes lower myself and enter into the gate and then everything's going to be fine and then I can pull in all the, the goods with me. Um, there's a second teaching, which is uh, uh, pretty interesting and pretty cool, but doesn't quite fit the bill. Uh, I call it the rope theory. The rope theory is that camel, in Aramaic and Hebrew, uh, camel and a rope or a thread are very, very similar. They're actually off by one letter. So the notion here is a camel going through a needle. That doesn't make sense. So what Jesus is really saying is a thread going through. So it's, it's still... Like a camel going through a needle, you're, that's insane. There's no way. But a thread, it can go, it can go in, right? Unless you're blind, right? But it can go in. It, it's that, it's, that it's, it's difficult, but it's not impossible. A camel going through the eye of needle is impossible. A thread going through the eye of the needle, it's, it's really hard, but it's still possible. Now, if that's the case, uh, three of the four Gospels that all mention this story would all have to be saying the wrong, wrong word, and there would have to be mistranslations in three of the Gospels of the four. But people run off this. See, if you just, if you just concentrate and if you just, you, you really can still do it. So you can still take all of your wealth and you can still do all this kind of stuff. And what I'm trying to get at here, and I don't want to necessarily offend too many people here, these renditions of these theories to try to explain what's going on is really all so that we can continue to teach this notion of prosperity theology. God wants you to be rich. And if you're not rich, there's something wrong. Well, with all due respect to you all, not everyone is meant to be rich. I know he doesn't want you in lack. I know that. I absolutely know the Lord does not want you begging in the streets. I absolutely know that. But I don't know if the Lord really wants me to be a millionaire. I know he doesn't want us to lack. Absolutely. To be a millionaire... Come on, I'm already wealthy. As Ben Carson says, he talks about wealth. He's like, I'm already the luckiest man in the world. I was born in America. You're already like ridiculously wealthy in physical things, let alone spiritual things being born again, right? What I'm trying to say here is this. People will do these very intricate kind of things to make it very commandeering for the Western church. It's okay. I can be really, really wealthy. And, and, and still enter the kingdom of heaven, which you still can, but there needs to be some clarification here. So what does Jesus mean? He means this. It is more difficult for a rich man to go into the kingdom of heaven than a camel, a real actual camel, to go to the actual eye of a needle. That's what he's saying. Not of all this kind of, you know, poetic kind of mojo to try to make things work for you. Now, we know this in part because in ancient Persia, where the Jews were living for a long time, there is a Persian proverb. It is easier for an elephant to pass through the eye of a needle. The Jews probably took this proverb. Jesus is replicating it. But there are no elephants in Israel. So what's the largest animal in Israel? A camel. And what do we know from the Persians? The Persians taught 
that is easier for an elephant to pass through the eye of a needle was a way of explaining the impossible. Like, it's impossible. Like, when pigs fly, that's our version. Impossible? Oh, what happened when an elephant could go through the eye of a needle? And don't worry, because there's, there's, there, 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 there's a truth in the matter of being wealthy and entering the kingdom of heaven. That's what we need to get to. Yes, yes, it's impossible for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. But there are obviously some clauses and caveats. So this emphasizes the notion of impossibility, the gate and the camel theories, the eye of the needle, the thread. It's all been used to try to dispel this understanding to make it very nice for Westerners. But it's not Jesus. So what is really, what is the Lord really getting at here? This is what the point of the story really is. The notion that you are wealthy because of something that you did or that you earned it by God's favor is what Jesus is commenting on. The notion that you're blessed, you're a man of God, and you have all this money, and all these planes, and all these limousines, because you have done something righteous before the Lord, that is the very thing that Jesus is teaching against in this story. But the irony here is that the Western church will use this story to justify the idea that you're the man of God, and you get to get all this stuff. It's very, very comical. Let me, let, let, once again, let, let me clarify, because I don't want you to get this wrong. The fact that you may be wealthy does not mean it is because you have achieved that because you have right standing with God. There's plenty of wealthy people that do not have right standing with God. So if you're like, hey, I'm wealthy because I did something and was right with God and he just gave me all this, it's not necessarily true. The fact that you are poor is not because you necessarily did something against God. It may just be that you are poor. Okay, this, this is the rhetoric of Job's friends. Instead of wealth and poverty, it's health and illness. Job, why did God take all this away from you? You must have done something wrong. And he's like, no, I, well, I'm not going to curse God. I haven't done anything wrong. Yeah, you must have. You're sick. God took away all of your... This is the same rhetoric. Oh, you're poor. You must have done something wrong. Oh, you're wealthy. You must have done something right in the eyes of the Lord. This is what Jesus is talking about. So let's get back to the story. And I, and I want to clarify, I... I don't believe that the Lord wants you living in poverty where you cannot get your needs met. I absolutely do not think that. There's too many scripture verses that talk about his provision. Um, at the same time, I'll be quite honest, and you may not hear this from too many pastors, I also don't believe that the Lord wants all of us to be millionaires. Paul the Apostle was not a millionaire. Peter wasn't a millionaire. Jesus wasn't a millionaire. 
I mean, I mean, Abraham was very wealthy. David was very wealthy. He gives to some for certain reasons and he does not for others. But I do know he does not want you lacking. I absolutely know that. I know he wants to create a life in you, both physically and spiritually, where you're able to bless people. And it's very important because I don't want you leaving here without that understanding. But to say that you're wealthy because the Lord loves you and you've done something right, danger. And this is what is really going on with the Jewish man who is rich. He goes to Jesus like, what's the deal? What do you got to do to get to be saved? Jesus says you have to do boom, 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 boom. He recites, almost, he recites eight of the Ten Commandments. This is what you have to do. The only two he leaves out interesting was the Sabbath and also coveting. And the rich man didn't pick up on that, did he? Rest and don't covet. The rich man says, I've done all this. I've done all of this. I've done all of this. I'm good. In the theology of the time, it's the same theology of the day, of today. And it's this. Because I have lived a right standing life with the Lord, with God, I now have been showered with blessings. This is the context. In Judaism, in the day, just like the prosperity theology of today, if you were wealthy in ancient Israel, it was a sign that God loved you and that you're doing things right. And now he says, what do I need to do to get saved? Essentially, the wealth in the story is a, a representation of the notion of salvation. I am wealthy, so I'm saved. He's given me all this because I'm doing the right thing. I have earned my wealth, or I've earned my salvation because of something that I did. This is what the rich man is saying. And this is what many people say today. And this type of thinking is so dangerous. Because this is what it creates. The God-centered gospel of regeneration is substituted with a man-centered decision, which makes salvation the result of one's humility or actions. I'm going to simplify it because it's a little heady, it's a little philosophical. It is, if you are wealthy because you have blessed the Lord, it's something that you did. If you are saved and blessed because of a choice and something that you did, you are putting man into the center and not God in the center. You and I have done nothing worthy to be saved. It is all and can only ever be about that cross and that nail. That's it. It is and never will be anything that you've ever done except for surrender to him. And this is what Jesus is talking about. Oh, the rich man. You believe you're favored of God. You believe that you are saved. You believe that you can enter the kingdom of heaven. Because look at your life. You have everything in order. You're blessed. 
and blessed and blessed. Obviously, it must be because God loves you. Remember, you're dealing with a people. This entire culture is all about God. <laughs> no. Jesus is saying it's not about that. It can never be about you. You did not earn your salvation. You received it from the cross, from that nail. That's it. Mm. Now, the sinner or a poor person usually understands their lack, right? Like someone who's poor, they understand the concept of lack. Someone who is like really like in the depths of sin and have no way out, right? They're like really falling rock bottom. They, they get to a place where they understand like there's no way out of this except for God. A poor person physically or spiritually, they understand this concept. I have nowhere else to go. I'm lacking something and it cannot be me. It can only be God. Anyone who's gone through recovery, NAAA, that's something that was one of the steps acknowledge that you're a mess and you cannot do this on your own. There needs to be some outside force. God, who is going to pull you out. But wealthy people, or not just wealthy people, people that, you know, I live a good life. I don't lie. I'm a nice person. I do the right thing. They have a very, very hard time in understanding That they can't do it. It can only be God who saves you. It's very, very, very much easier to witness the power of the gospel to poorer people. That's why in the third world the gospel is like roaring, right? But when you go to Europe, and you go into the wealthy areas in our community, it's much, much more difficult because they have everything figured out, don't they? And that is what Jesus is talking about. You, as a rich man, have their whole life together. It is impossible for you to get into the kingdom of heaven by what you do. That's what he's saying. It's only possible with God, because he's dealing with a culture, the times in the life of Jesus, he's dealing with a culture of people back then, and we have it today, that have completely absorbed themselves with prosperity theology, that I am blessed and I am favored of God because I have so much money. This is exactly what he's preaching again, which is so funny, because people will use that context, use that scripture verse to prove the opposite. Nuts, nuts. All right. Where am I? All right. So the rich man in all this scenario, he's more or less saying, I'm good. I, I've, I've done all of this. I've done all the commandments. I'm good. I'm saved. I'm wealthy. I don't have to do anything else. And this is when Jesus now really pushes against him and says, oh, you, 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 think, you think you earned your salvation because of all this wealth? So what you got to do is this, you got to sell everything and learn that only God provides the salvation. You can do nothing. 
This is when Jesus says, with men, this is impossible. What is impossible? Earning your salvation, which is a representation in the story by someone who's very wealthy. It was a sign that they were saved, favored of God. That's impossible. It's impossible for man to earn his salvation. That is what Jesus is saying in this story. But even wealthy people can be saved, not by their own doing, but by the grace of the Lord. That's why Jesus says, with men this is impossible, with God it is possible. It really actually has very little to do with wealth. It has everything to do with the notion of who is earning the favor, the salvation. You can't earn it. That's why you need to sell everything and start from scratch so you understand that principle. He didn't get that. And that's why he kept going. And many people in the church don't get it, so they do all these elaborate things to try to explain all of it. Are you guys with me? Or? All right, should I cut it now? The football game on today? I don't even know, right? It's obviously a joke. I'm going to keep going. I'm, I'm going. The other aspect of this story is, is really an understanding of the concepts of order and chaos. I'm going to try to explain this. Uh, from the beginning of man, man has been attempting to bring order out of chaos. Chaos, the unpredictable thing, the stress, the fallen nature. Uh, order is, you know, I, uh, I'm, I, I feel comfortable. Things are good. From the beginning of the Garden of Eden to today, to when you leave this place, and in many churches, even during the church service, there's an attempt to bring order out of the chaos of things. It's man interfering and trying to get things done. This has been going on since the beginning. There was no chaos, Dave, in the Garden of Eden. I know, that's when Satan comes up and he creates uncertainty, doesn't he? And what is chaos? Uncertainty. Satan says, well, did God really say that? Now they're like, oh, wow. I'm uncertain. There's chaos. What's going on? And what did Adam and Eve do? They eat of the fruit to bring what to their now new chaos in their mind. What do they do? In order to bring order from that chaos, they eat of the fruit. They take control. God doesn't want you to be like him. So eat this and be like him. Whoa, whoa, how do you do that in the 21st century? You don't have fruit that we're eating from. What is it? Who is bringing order to your chaos? You? That's eating the fruit. Or God. Now this fits into this story very nicely because this is what's really what Jesus is talking about. The rich man has said, look, I got order. I don't know how he got money. His parents gave it to him. Maybe he worked, but he's got everything in order. I got money. I can do what I want. I don't have to be worried. It's a very stable and controlled environment since he has so much wealth. Right? So Jesus, in a sense, is saying, hey, good job, bro. Good job that you brought order out of your chaos, but that's not the way. The lesson in this story is um, more than about salvation. It is about who is bringing order to your chaos. Who is bringing order to your chaos? The unpredictability of things. 
It's a chaotic environment out there. It's a chaotic environment in here. The rich man is saying, I am bringing order. If you, and like I said, it's more than salvation. It's about the trials and tribulations and difficulties of, of, of life. If you are the person that brings order out of the chaos, you will not have kingdom realities in your life. If God is the one who brings order out of your chaos, you will have heaven, meaning earth. You need to allow God to bring order to your chaos. This is what the rich man did not understand. He provided the order. God is saying, get rid of it so I can create some disorder in your life so that I can show you that I am the one that needs to bring order to your life. Chaos is unpredictability. It's uncertainty. Order is safety and sense of control. Who is the one that is changing your chaos into order? If we have the worship team come forward, please. Look, we, li we, have, we live in a fallen world and a fallen nature. If your chaos is greater than the order of your life, you're going to have stress. You're going to have uncertainty. No one wants that. I don't want that. Right? I mean, who wants that? If chaos is greater than the order, boom, stress, uncertainty. But okay, what about the opposite? What if you have more order than the chaos? That's kind of weird. Anyone want to, as they get ready, because everyone's like, oh, the worship team is walking up. There's chaos. <laughs> so let's, let's answer a quick question. If there's more order than chaos, what, what, what's the result? Order, safety, provision, right? Peace of mind, thank you. I, I think it's kind of a trick question. It really depends on who's bringing the order. Ah, I'm not an anarchist in any way of the form. <laughs> but we have to be very careful here. A little bit of, a little bit of chaos is, is not necessarily bad. If we live in a society that is super orderly, what do you have? If God's not doing it and man does it, what do you have? You have Nazi Germany. You have Joseph Stalin. You have Mao Zedong in China who kills about 200 million of his own people trying to create order by man. There needs to be an appropriate balance. If you have greater order than chaos, if man is doing it, you're going to have no spontaneity, you're going to have no life, and you're going to have no meaning. Why? Because if you are the one that is bringing order to the chaos, you are your own God. You did it. You rich man on that horse, you're the one that did it, didn't you? <laughs> we need to create a balance between all of this. And the balance is really found with allowing Jesus and allowing the Holy Spirit to be the one that brings the order to your life. The rich man did not understand this principle. He has everything figured out. He has everything in order. He is the one that did it. And that is why Jesus says this, well then sell all of your belongings. Now you're not going to be in order anymore, are you? And you will now have to relearn the concept that it is only God that brings order out of your chaos. If you do it, you're your own God. 
So go sell everything. Give it to the poor. Be perfect. Be perfect how? Be perfect by now the Lord training you. Allowing Him to bring the order. And now Jesus could be the one who brings order. And now your life will have meaning. This is a tough one. It's another thing that goes up against the prosperity theology of the West. When I read the Bible, it says glory in all trials and tribulations. Whoa, that means trial and tribulation comes. Well, if you're going through a trial and tribulation, it must mean that you don't have enough faith. Excuse me? Trial and tribulation. It will come. They persecuted me. They're going to persecute you. Paul being killed. I, that, that's, was he not favored of God? It's just ridiculous teaching. Ridiculous teaching. Sometimes God allows man to fall back into unpredictability, into the chaotic time of life. He sometimes allows it. Why? To have you grow into a new revelation of His provision. To give your life the true meaning of the cross. Sometimes the Lord allows people to go through hard times. To enter into that place of a little bit of chaos. He's not going to forsake you. But sometimes He says, alright, I'm going to allow this to happen. Not even necessarily because of anything that you've done necessarily wrong, because he wants to bring you into higher places, into heavenly places, that you can learn how to glory in trial and tribulation, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, that you can be complete and perfect, lacking nothing. A wealthy man cannot gain that knowledge, because everything's in order. How can he become patient when he has everything? How can he become perfect when he has everything? It is the trial, the tribulation, a little bit of the chaos that allows you to grow by the Spirit of God, to understand the power of the cross, the power of the resurrection, the power of the blood to give order to your unpredictability. Amen? Amen. Woo! That is the teaching of the rich man going through the eye of a needle or the camel going through the eye of a needle. So, in conclusion here, the meaning here, don't sell all of your belongings. <laughs> I mean, if the Lord tells you to sell all of your belongings and being a missionary in India, awesome. I'm not going to get in the way of that. But this teaching here is, is not all about you selling all of your belongings and like walking around the streets in sackcloth. It's also not about you just being favored of God and now receiving all these blessings. That's not the lesson. The lesson is who is bringing order out of your chaos? You as a man or a woman or God himself? That is the lesson. And if you have not learned it, rich man, you need to put yourself back into a chaotic environment. Oh, you're not? So maybe the Lord has to do it for you. A little trial, a little tribulation, a little testing of your faith. So the camel is you, the needle is heaven, order, provision in your life. Provision both physically and spiritually. The lesson is that provision spiritually and physically can only be through the cross and nothing else. It's not through your talent, it's not through your gifting, it's not through your ability. He is the one that makes your impossible possible. 
whether it's your spiritual dynamic or your physical dynamic. He is the one. You can take control and be the one that provides for you and be stressed out and have no room for the Holy Ghost. Or you can allow the Lord to work for you. I'll take allowing the Lord to work for me. He makes it impossible possible. Your job that you don't have, He makes it possible. Not how good your resume is. Not how good your talking skills are. God makes the way for that job. God is the one that makes the way for your healing. Not because you pray 20 hours a day and now you're, whoa, God heals you. No, it is because the power of the blood. Not your 20 hours of prayer. Not your essential oils. Not your organic living. Although those things help. But it's Him and Him alone. Salvation, an impossible feat. It's only through Him, not your actions. The hope. The hope. Because of the blood. The death, the resurrection, because of the blood. The unification of families because of the blood. Not because of what you say to them and not because of, of, of you talking with them and trying to convince them. It's because of the blood of Jesus. The power of the anointing of the Holy Ghost. Changing of communities, changing of culture. It's because of the blood, not because of things that you do. He partners with you in it, but it's because of Him. And I encourage you that when you enter into chaos and there is unpredictability in your life, fight the urge to take control. That's what the rich man did. Surrender yourself to Jesus. Say, Jesus, I'm allowing you to bring order out of my chaos. Your way. Your way. Your way. Just closing with Ephesians chapter 1 to give a little bit more proof text to the power of this. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord, Jesus the Messiah, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. He gives you the spiritual blessing. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly place is in Messiah. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. Having predestined us to adoptions as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will. To the praise of the glory of His grace, by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. In Him and only through Him, we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace which he made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the manifestation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. 
In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance into the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Amen? Father, I pray right now that we would grab the understanding from you that you are the one who gives the blessing and the inheritance. The only thing we have to do and the only thing we can do is surrender our chaos to you. Father, we pray that we can surrender our unpredictability and our chaotic things that may be going on, that we surrender to you, and now that, all, that chaos has a meaning. That meaning is... Did the Pharisees not say unto Jesus, why is this man sick? Is it because it's something his fathers did? Is it something because he has sinned? That's pretty chaotic. And what's Jesus' response? No, it's been done. So the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. Lord, bring order to whatever chaos we may have. So only and only and only that your glory would be revealed. Amen? Amen. Why don't we, uh, we stand? Yes, Lord. If you have some chaos in your life, I want you to come forward and we will pray for you. But our prayer for you is going to be allowing the Lord to be the moving agent. And not your ability, not your gifting, not your talent, not your hustle, but God would be the one who delivers you. Amen? Have a wonderful week. Feel free to go downstairs and have some refreshments. But we also want to open up the, uh, the sanctuary, continue to be a place for you to dwell in His presence. Amen? Have a wonderful week.